0: Welcome to Understanding the Bible with Pastor Stephen. Today is episode 48, Sex and Submission, Different Viewpoints. Today we'll be covering God's viewpoint on sex, and then next week we'll be getting into men versus women's viewpoint on sex. And as I had said earlier, this was supposed to be a four-part series. Well, this part is probably going to take two or three uh, episodes to do. But uh, let's dive into it. So God's purposes for sex. At the very beginning of creation, uh, we have the triune God who created men and women. So let's read uh, Genesis 1, uh, verse 26 through 28. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. First of all, God is, as we know through the rest of scripture, he's actually three in one. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three distinct beings, and yet somehow they are one God. And that is one of the miracles and mysteries of the God that we worship uh, in the Bible. So, when he said, let us create man in our image, and he created mankind male and female, that is two parts of the image of God. And I think that both of those images are a part of who God is. So, the masculine and the feminine. When we look at sex, we have to consider both views as godly and something that we need to try and understand. Overall, I'm just going to throw this out there and we'll discuss it on the next episode. Generally speaking, men view sex as a physical act and a need and women view sex as more of the emotional uh, connection or a bonding to somebody. Now, there's a whole spectrum between those two where you individually may fall, where you you blend those two together. But in general, I believe that is how men and women view sex. Now, based on this creation that God made, both of those views are intended by God to be godly. So God implanted in human beings the desire for sex and then in verse 28 the command to have sex and people don't think about this you know off the top of their head but it says god said unto them be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth he told them their primary directive is to have children be fruitful and multiply." Well, in order to have children, you need to have sex. So God told Adam, go have sex and have children, produce offspring. When he told Adam this, Adam was a perfect man. It was clearly understood by Adam that he needed to find someone, a woman like him, a human being, as opposed to an animal, to have sex with. We don't know quite the chronology of who God was talking to because this is Genesis one is a brief summary of the creation. You look at Genesis chapter two and Genesis chapter three, and it goes into more detail. So it kind of goes back in time and explains a little bit further. Some of these things. So we don't know if Genesis one twenty eight he was talking just to Adam or if he was talking to Adam and Eve, I am just leaning towards the idea that he was talking to Adam when he said, be fruitful and multiply, because then you look at, uh, Genesis 2, starting in verse 19, what did Adam do? In verse 19, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and, they shall, cleave unto, and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So two things here. Adam was given a task, he went out to name the animals, and for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. You don't find something, usually, unless you're searching for it. So, my guess is, on this chronology here, is that God told him, gave him a command to be fruitful and multiply. Adam, being a perfect man and perfectly understanding what God intended, went out to search for a helpmeet, someone that he could be fruitful and multiply with. As all these animals and the fowls of the air came to him and he named them, he was searching. Okay, where's mine? Where's mine? And he names them and he names them and he names them and he didn't, doesn't see one and he gets to end and he's like, "There, there's nobody for me, God. How am I supposed to do this? And God's like, I got you. Go to sleep. And then he makes the woman. So that is my opinion on how it transpired there. If you read the Bible, it seems like that's logical and there is no other way to understand that be fruitful and multiply other than Adam needed Eve to have sex with. And then you look at verse 24, it said, and they shall be one flesh, which in biblical terms, and you can see scientifically when two come together and have sex, that is connecting and having one flesh together. What is God's view of sex? Why couldn't God just have human beings be like mushrooms and spores off of each other? instead of having that physical act. Well, there's a couple of reasons for it that I've found in the Bible. And the primary one seems to be for procreation. And yet there's a lot more in the Bible about what sex is for as well. So if we look at Genesis 1.28, we already read that. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Then if you look at Genesis 9.1, after the flood and everybody was killed except for Noah and his sons, God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So it's very clear throughout time that God's like, Okay, you need to have kids. And then if you look at Psalm 127, verse 3, it says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. God wants you to have lots of children. And it says that you'll be happy if you do. All right. And the second reason for sex is for joy and pleasure. If you look at the Song of Solomon, there's lots of verses in there describing the naked body of their lover. I would challenge you to read it if you haven't read it before. You have to kind of think about the figurative language because a lot of it they're referring to uh, fruits, Um, you know, and... So I'm just going to read a couple of verses in Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1. It says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. And it continues, and you can you can read further if you read in uh, chapter two. Um, it talks about his banner over me as love, the banquet, uh, being sick with love, even potentially a sexual position. It says his left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth em- embrace me. There's lots of symbolism in the chapters here, talking about feeding and eating of the love and the secret places and describing each other with different um, fruits like the, the grape and the fig, the description of the woman's breasts and different things like that in the Song of Solomon make it very clear that sex and the naked female form is a beautiful thing. All right. And then she describes him uh, when he is naked in his stomach and the different parts of his body that she enjoys touching and looking at. And Song of Solomon is one of those, I guess, uh, books of poetry and art. If you're into that sort of thing, not me so much, but uh, it's so descriptive that in jewish tradition you used to not be able to read the song of solomon until you were at least 12 years old because it was not for innocent children so after you reach puberty then you could read the song of solomon it is clearly a book of joy and pleasure and it is not at all about having children so it's fun to read um, if you're into poetry but Uh, That is the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about sex in the Bible. One of the things that I would also point out in regards to sex is God created us, right? The massive nerve endings that we have in our sexual organs that give us the feelings that are created when we have sex, that creates the chemical releases in the brain, the endorphins, is clearly something that God put there in us that he did not give to animals, God did this because he wanted us to enjoy the act of sex. There's no other reason for that. Now, I got a good quote here from gotquestions.org. It says, "Um, God designed the body to respond pleasurably to touch in certain areas. He could have made us with no desire for sex and no gratifying sensations during sex, but he didn't. He gave us sex not merely as the means to propagate, but as a bonus, a gift to be enjoyed. God intended sex to be pleasurable. And it seems that way just from creation, the way he created us. Now I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now, we're going to break it down and actually dig into this, because this has got some very important stuff in here. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for man not to touch a woman. Obviously, the people of the church were writing to him and asking about romantic entanglements and sex. And what do we do in marriage? And is it okay to do certain things? So, the reason we know that it's about sex is because he said "Is it is good for a man not to touch a woman. To touch is from the haptomai, uh, reflexive Greek word. And the root there is hapto, which means to set on fire. So, to touch here is sexually. And there's more in regards to that. But he then says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication. If it's good for a man not to touch a woman, to avoid fornication, we need to do something. Well, what is fornication? Well, fornication comes from the word pornea. And that means harlotry, adultery, incest, or idolatry giving yourselves to something false, to a false god. So, fornication, which is where we get the word pornography, because it's pornea, that is clearly sexual. So, to avoid giving yourself over to the sexual sins, the incest, the harlotry, and then the adultery, we clearly have a direction that Paul's going here. So, let's think about that for a second. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid bad sexual things. So what he's saying is, if you don't touch a woman sexually, you're going to probably end up getting into fornication, right? So if you abstain from sex, you have the danger of getting into being a harlot or committing adultery or incest with your family. So, This means that that touching a woman is clearly sexual, because if you don't do it, you're going to do sexual stuff. So you might as well do sex with a woman, right? So that's what he's saying in the next verse is verse two, to avoid the fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Then verse three, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. So, in regards to sex and touching a woman, now that you've got a wife, you must render due benevolence. That means give her something. Benevolence is kindness, mercy, or service. It's marked by or being disposed to doing good for somebody. You may have heard, you know, a philanthropist is a benevolent donor to some cause, right? That means he's doing good to somebody. And then it says, and likewise, also the wife unto the husband. This right here is very clear in regards to sex that you are rendering service or kindness to the other person. Well, if you want to put that down into blatant terms, that means I'm going to help that person have an orgasm. When it comes to sex, doing a service to them or being kind to them would be helping them feel good, right? So, we need to be paying attention to this. This is some actual direction on how to have sex. Have a wife. A woman should have a husband. And the husband should give the wife due service or kindness. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. And then verse 4, the wife has not power of her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife the word power there is exousiazō which is to control or to exercise authority upon. If God has delegated the husband's authority on his wife's body and vice versa, how are we to wield that authority? So remember if you you have to take everything in context of the whole Bible. When when God talks about service, And the Christian life, he talks about the disciples not lording it over each other. Instead, they're supposed to be a servant to each other, even though they were the 12 disciples who were leaders, right? So their authority as disciples who wrote the Bible was to be exercised in a manner of service. So when we are given a position of authority, it's not to lord it over and accumulate things for ourselves. It is not for the husband or wife to say to their spouse, your body is mine. Come sleep with me. You don't have a choice. It is supposed to be, that authority is supposed to be handled in a position of service. That means we, we don't make demands and we're, we should not be selfish. But when it comes to sex, we should be serving each other. And on the same note, the spouse who is being asked for sex should be looking at it the same way because the person asking has authority over your body you should be willing to submit and give that sex to your spouse when they want it but then you have to understand that you have authority over their body and you are supposed to be doing due benevolence to them which means you are in service to them to help them feel good and them requesting to have sex with you should result in you feeling good as well it's it's a duality there of, of helping each other to enjoy and have that kindness or that service done for you sexually, physically. So let me give you a scenario because this is typically how people look at it is the husband always wants sex and the wife doesn't, right? She has a headache or she doesn't feel like it or she feels like she, he asked too many times or, or, or does, don't you ever get enough, right? That's kind of what the general consensus is thank God for the women that are the other way around because they are few and far between, but (laughs) the man asks the woman for sex. Says, hey, I want to have sex tonight. The wife doesn't feel like it, but she submits to his authority because her body is not her own, right? And she says, okay, I'll be in later. Husband goes to sleep. Wife comes in later and wakes him up to have sex with him. What she should be thinking of at that time is obviously the side of, hey, I've submitted and I'm giving him what he desires, right? But she has power over his body, which should be pretty obvious once you get into the sexual act. You know, the woman actually controls a lot of things there and she should actually be enjoying it and be receiving pleasure from him as well. It's not rocket science. It's something that because of the nerve endings and the things that God has placed in us and the desires that we have, sex is supposed to be enjoyable. So you may start out not wanting to do it but the end result should be that you are gratified. Does that make sense? And the husband is not supposed to just lie there and take it. He is supposed to be exercising that control, that authority over his wife's body and giving her due benevolence, servicing her, doing a kind, kindness to her to make sure that she has pleasure as well. So by the time you're both done, the wife might still be saying I'm tired and I really didn't want to do this, but she feels good and she's glad she did it. Now that's just one scenario. Obviously that can be flipped because the Bible here clearly states the husband does this and the wife also let every man have a woman for a wife and let every woman have a husband. So it's very clear that this is not based off of gender. This goes both ways. So when we talk about the submission here, we're not talking about the wife being the docile little house mother that, that does whatever her husband tells her. No, we're talking about the submission in regards to the power of your own body and giving it to the other person and being a servant to each other. All right. Now, let's look at verse 5. It says, Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, and that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. This is telling you, you should not defraud one another by withholding sex, unless you both agree to do so. Consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. The only reason to withhold sex... For a certain period of time is if you both agree because you're going to be fasting and praying and then you must come together again, which means have sex again, that Satan tempt you not. Now that's, I'm not talking about if one is sick or has a broken leg or something like that. I'm, it's very clear that this is talking about withholding sex for a certain period of time. That's what defrauding is. Okay. When, when you take away what is due to somebody else. That needs to be clearly understood as well. When you are in a marriage relationship, sex is supposed to be a part of it. And when you take that part away, you are defrauding your spouse. And then the last part is 1 Corinthians 7, 6, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. Paul's opinion, not a Bible doctrine, as opposed to verse 10 where he says, and unto the married, I command yet not I, but the Lord. And the reason is, if you read that, he is saying that he wishes all men would stay single and devote their life to God and not women. So the purpose of this letter in first Corinthians was written because people at the church were writing to Paul and asking him about sex, about marriage. And Paul's explaining to them, look, this is my opinion. Nobody should nobody should engage in sex. It's good for, for a man not to have sex with a woman, ever. Be, be celibate and and pertain to the things of God, not not to the things of the flesh. I want you to devote your entire life to traveling around and witnessing to people like I do. Okay, that's what Paul is saying here. That's his opinion. And then he says, but it's good for a husband to have a wife. It's good for a woman to have a husband. And when you do, be careful that you do not defraud each other because you're so spiritually minded that you don't deal with the needs of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 7 is something we don't talk about very often, and I think it's extremely important. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, uh, it does mention uh, sex in the book of Proverbs, and there's lots of other passages. I just picked this out because it's so obvious in this one. Proverbs 5, verse 18 and 19 It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breasts satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. God wants us to enjoy sex. God wants us to be ravished. It's very clear in the Bible and Song of Solomon and Proverbs that the breasts of a woman are meant to entice men and it works, right? Then you look at the New Testament. Ephesians 5, verse 28, he says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For mo- no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherish- cherisheth it, even as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Even here in Ephesians, it wasn't just the Corinthians that were having this issue, but the Ephesians were having questions about this, and he talks about the one flesh, and he's making a metaphor about Christ and the church, but then he brings it back and he says, "Listen." No man hates his own flesh. You need to nourish and love your spouse's flesh in the same way you take care of your own. So we could bring up masturbation here. We could bring up all sorts of things. But the point is, nobody wants to harm themselves. Everyone likes to feel good. So you're supposed to do the same for your spouse. Nevertheless, let everyone in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Enjoyment of sex is a part of marriage. It is something that God talks about all the time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. The metaphors, the the descriptions of sex in the Bible are very explicit as far as the body parts and things like that. There are lots of times when God talks about the idolatry of the Jewish nation And he has his prophets talk about it in terms of sex, harlotry, and whoring after other gods. And if you read Ezekiel, there's some passages, a couple chapters in there where he gets so descriptive about the the Jews going after other gods like a harlot goes after men that she finds comely. And it talks about how big the guy's penis is. It talks about The harlot wanting him just because he's hung like a donkey and his emissions are so great. Talking about the man's orgasm. The Bible talks about sex way more, way more than Christians in America give it credit for. Why? My opinion is that sex is such a crucial part of the human experience. It was the first command that God gave to Adam. Go forth and multiply. It is a driving force in men because of that. And so God knows when he's talking about idolatry and leaving God and seeking something else for your fulfillment, that if he uses sexual terminology, it will hit to the core of our being and we as humans will understand the betrayal and the feelings, the passion the desires that God is intending to get across to us. When God chooses to speak in sexual terms, it's not because God is obsessed with sex, like the fake goddess Aphrodite or whatever, you know, the different mythological gods and such. It's not that that's their whole being. It's that God knows that sex is a big part of our life. And so we will understand him when he talks in terms sexual terms So when we get into the physical needs and the emotional needs um, and how sex fulfills that next week, be thinking about your desires and your needs and how that is actually a part of what God has given humans to you specifically. It is not wrong. It is a desire that God put into us at creation. It is a command that God gave us and God gave, deliberately made a woman for Adam to help him fulfill the command of being fruitful and multiply. God could have done it many different ways. Look at seahorses, right? The guy carries the baby. Look at plants. Look at different animals. There, there are so many different ways that you could give offspring or have offspring. There's no need to have enjoyment in it. There's no need to have even another person involved. If God, you know, I'm talking about at creation here. But what God did instead was he created the second half, man and woman, to be the image of God together. And that is why he says the two shall become one flesh. We are to have a bonding where we are more complete. We are more completely the image of God when we are together than when we are single on our own. Now, there's advantages to being single. You know, we'll cover that too, like Paul. But no matter what state you are in, God can use you. And your strengths and what you would perceive to be your weaknesses, God can use to further the kingdom of God. So don't think that you have to be married or you ought to be single. Because with these Bible verses that we've read, it's very clear God designed you to enjoy sex with the opposite sex. So go get married so that you can do that. And then find joy in it in pleasuring each other and helping each other to fulfill or to fulfill their needs. So I hope that explained the biblical perspective on sex from God's viewpoint on, on us having sex. It is not bad. And if any of you were raised to view sex as bad, I challenge you to read the Bible, read Song of Solomon, read Ezekiel, read 1 Corinthians 7, Get in the Bible. Get a study Bible that has cross-references and goes to other verses. And remember that the Bible says what it says for a reason. Not everything is a metaphor. The Bible literally uses words for literal definitions, for literal use in your life. Not merely to spiritualize everything. And some people will look at some of these verses like the Song of Solomon and they spiritualize the whole thing and say it's talking about Jesus and the church, and it's not. Now, it can be a metaphor for Jesus and the church, the husband and the wife, but it was a literal black woman that was a queen of Solomon that wrote, and Song of Solomon wrote about her, about how their physical bodies looked and how they enjoyed each other. The Bible is not metaphorical. The Bible is meant to be read literally. So I hope that was a little bit enlightening for you. I hope you learned a few things. If you do have questions about anything uh, that we talked about today, please email me at angrypatriot42 at yahoo.com. And I will definitely address it and expound a little bit more on those particular verses or questions that you had. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may God bless you.